seeing you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, Denny Henderson is my name. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here at Woods Edge. And we've been going through over the last several weeks together uh, this, this, uh, this series that we call We on Mission, Woods Edge on, Woods Edge on Mission. And what we've been talking about is what would it look like if for, for us here at Woods Edge, if we were all being engaged in the mission of God? Uh, both individually but collectively as a church, that we aren't just known as a church of missions, but we are a church that's on mission. And so uh, we looked at the very first week of coming to our understanding that God himself, his very character, is one who is on mission, that he is the missio dei. He is the God, that's Latin for the sent one or the sent God, that he has sent himself into humanity. He has propelled himself into the lives of people to reconcile them. And as Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And so we too should be sent into our communities and into the lives of others to be an ambassador, to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation, reconcile people back to their creator, God himself. And then we talked about week two that, that um, it's our responsibility to grow spiritually. It's not, um, it, it's not Pastor Jeff's responsibility it's not the responsibility of a home church group leader. It's not the responsibility of Justin over in student ministries and his team, Pastor Jeff and their team over in children's ministry, that, that for each one of us as an individual, as a Christ follower, that we have to own our spiritual growth. No one can do that for us. We have to own it. And we own it because it's important. It actually matters. What we do with our walk with Christ actually matters. And then last week we talked about how maturity, as we, as we grow in Christ, as we mature in Christ, it's always going to lead us towards mission. And the, the most simplest way that it leads us to mission is the mission right outside our front door, which is our neighborhood. We looked at the story uh, that Jesus told of, of uh, the Good Samaritan. And we asked the question, who's going to be a good neighbor? Who's going to be the neighbor? See, the neighbor is the people that, live in, that, that we're in proximity with, those that we live around. And, and for us to be on mission, it's just as simple as walking across the street and getting to know the name of our neighbor. And I don't know how you did this week. I don't know if you had any awkward conversations in your neighborhood this weekend or uh, went and knocked on some doors. But I got a phone call uh, Monday morning, and, um, which is very, very uh, abnormal, uh, at least to get a phone call on my they have these phones, they still sit on desks. And, um, and so my phone rang, and I always forget I have a phone in my office because it sits behind like one of my computers, uh, computer monitors, and I don't actually see it, and it never rings. You know, I usually get text or uh, my cell phone, you know, rings, but I never get uh, an actual phone call on the actual phone. And, uh, and so it rings, and I, and I was like, who pulled the fire alarm? That's the first thought. And I was like, what is that noise? And I was like, oh, I, I forgot I have a phone. So I answered it, and it was, it was a lady who was here on Sunday, this past Sunday, and she was actually visiting with a friend here at Woods Edge. First time she's ever been here. She was visiting with a friend, and she wanted to call to let me know that, that the message from last week about being a neighbor just, just really spoke to her. That her and her friend who were here this past weekend, when they walk every evening in their neighborhood. They went walking through their neighborhood, and they got just a few blocks away from, from where they began their walk. And they, they come across this young lady who's sitting on the curb, and she's crying. She seems a little distraught. And they walked right past her until the Holy Spirit said, hello, what is... What about this morning? And, um, and so they stopped and they both felt convicted. They said, you know, we need to go back and see what's going on. So they go back to this young lady and they begin to talk to her. They just, they just opened up a conversation. 
She'd been kicked out. She, uh, as she said, she was slightly intoxicated, not sure on how much she was listening. But throughout the course of the next 45 minutes, they began to pray with her. They got to share the gospel with her. They got to take her to a place where she'd be safe and got, got her home to her mother. And through this, she called me. She said, and I just got off the phone with her. So she called her on Monday to follow up. And she goes, and th- th- this young lady is just like, I, whatever you have, whatever hope you have, I want that hope. And then she asked, are you a cult? She's like, no, we just love Jesus, right? <laughs> and it's just being a neighbor. It's just being a neighbor. That's how simple it is to be on mission with Jesus. That's how simple it is. But this is what we have to find out is as she spoke to me, she said, um, you know, I don't know what's going to come of this new relationship with this young lady. She goes, and, you know, I don't know what's all in store out there. And I said to my, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, it's probably going to be messy. Because here's the truth. Anytime we walk with Jesus on mission, it's going to get messy. That's the big idea today. For the next few moments together, nothing more than that. So let's just say it together. When we walk with Jesus, it will be messy. It'll be messy. It's going to be messy. Like Jesus, as we look through the gospel accounts, we always see that Jesus was walking in and out of messes all the time. And in Luke chapter 5, if you have a Bible, actually, I invite you to meet me there. If you don't have a Bible, steal your neighbors or steal a phone or something. But get to Luke chapter 5 because I think it's important that we actually read it from Scripture. Don't just trust me what it's saying, but look in your Bible and see what it says. In Luke chapter 5, in Luke's gospel account, he gives us a story here where Jesus walks straight into the mess. This is a messy story. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, this is what the account says. After this, Jesus, after what? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. So at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he only has four disciples. There's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Here in this moment, he's calling his fifth disciple, who is called Levi here. We know him as Matthew, who pin the words of, uh, of the gospel of Matthew. So this is Matthew, Levi, that's Matthew. And he walks up to him and Levi's a tax collector. So he, he walks up to Levi and he says, Levi, follow me. And it says that, and what we're going to find is that Levi, Matthew says, okay. And he drops everything. He gives everything up and he follows Jesus. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to you. This may not seem like a very messy situation, but Jesus is walking into the mess because as, he's, as he approaches Levi, as he approaches Matthew, you have to understand who's he, who's he, who he is approaching. He's a tax collector. And tax collectors in those days were, were kind of scandalous people. I mean, tax collectors in those days were, 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 were cut off from society. They were, uh, they were the lowest of the lows. You couldn't get much lower than a tax collector. Think of the IRS and multiply it by infinity. That's how they felt about tax collectors. Why? Well, the Roman government had come and occupied uh, the, uh, Israel. They had come and occupied the promised land, God's, God's land that he gave his people. They were occupying that. And they were also take, taking taxes away from the Jewish people. But to get those taxes, they would hire people and, and they would become tax collectors for the Roman government to take money from the Jewish people, from a people who have, 
who have occupied their land. They're now paying them to occupy their land. And the ones who would do the tax collecting, the tax collectors, they weren't Gentiles. They weren't from Rome. You know who they were? They were Jewish people. It was your neighbor. It was your uncle. It was your, man, it was your bro back in elementary school. He's the one coming, knocking on the door, asking for the money, the taxes. In the people, in the Jewish people's mind, what they had done is they had totally betrayed their countrymen and became tax collectors. In fact, in this particular moment, we see that Matthew is sitting at a toll booth. We know toll booths. We have them right down the street, right? Just now, we don't actually pay with a dollar. We got those little stickers, and they just, you know, send us a bill, or they send you a picture, and they say, you owe this. Well, in the same same way back then, in some of the major thoroughfares that would come in and out of cities and out of the major places of commerce, they would have toll booths. And, and here we see Matthew is sitting at a toll booth, and he's collecting taxes from his countrymen. And, and, and what would happen? These tax collectors, they would go into a contractual agreement with the Roman government that they would actually, uh, that they would collect X amount of dollars in taxes. And that's just to cover the basis of the contract. But if they wanted to make more money and they wanted to kind of uh, fill up their coffers, they would extort the people, extort, extort the Jewish people and charge them even more. So your uncle, so your uncle or your cousin or maybe even your brother is extorting you out of money to send, a, send the money to a government that's occupying your land. And Matthew is taking a toll just for you to walk in your own backyard. I mean, tax collectors, the Jewish people hated them. And it says that Jesus walks right up to Matthew. In fact, in the Greek, he can be translated or inferred that it wasn't as if Jesus was just, you know, kind of meandering around and bumped into Matthew. It actually means that in the Greek, it, it lets us know that Jesus actually went and searched him out. He was seeking Levi. He was seeking Matthew. So he initiated this conversation. And he goes right up to, up to Levi and he says, Levi, follow me. And what we find in the passage is that Matthew says, okay. In fact, this is what it says. And leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. He rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are seek, uh, sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Matthew says, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. We've all been there. Many of us have been there. We've made that decision to follow Jesus. But look what Matthew did. He decides to follow Jesus. He leaves everything. But do you see the one thing he didn't leave? Look at the passage. What's the one thing he did not leave? He didn't leave his friendships. He didn't leave his relationships. In fact, what he does is he says, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. But before we get on our journey, can I throw a giant party? Can I throw like an epic block party on your behalf? She's like, yeah, I guess so. And so that's what Matthew does. He gathers all of his friends together. He meets Jesus, is changed by Jesus, immediately gets on mission with Jesus and invites his friends over to his house for a giant feast, a block party, and says, you've got to meet this man, Jesus, who's changed my life. 
And so they're at Matthew's, at Matthew's block party, and it says that Jesus is reclining at the table with, with tax collectors and others. That's what, that's what this says. The Pharisees were the ones who said tax collectors and other sinners. So there must have been a lot of sinners in that room. And Jesus is reclining at the table with them. And when you say reclining at the table, what does that mean? He's literally reclining at the table. That's how they ate in those days. They would recline. They would rest on one arm and, and lift up in, in you know, really short tables. Um, I would show you, but I wouldn't be able to get back up. So they would recline and they would eat. If you had like issues with, uh, with people touching your food or proximity issues while you eat, you would not do well in this particular moment. In fact, we see even at the Last Supper, John's account, John's gospel, John's gospel tells us that as they laid, as they reclined and ate at the Last Supper, that they were so close that it was his head that was laying on the chest of Jesus. So that's kind of the thing. Like they had this big table and around this table are tax collectors and other sinners. I don't know what, what that list is. Prostitutes, criminals, thieves. I, I don't know. I, we don't know. All we know is that Whoever are kind of the shunned of society and the religious people, they're in that room. And Jesus is sitting there reclining at the table with them, passing the food, taking the drinks, passing it around. And he's so comfortable in this moment. Do you see how comfortable Jesus is in the mess? In fact, the whole chapter of Luke chapter 5, just look at it. What's the narrative of Luke chapter 5? The, the whole narrative of Luke chapter 5 is you see Jesus going from one place to another place, one, uh, one interaction to another interaction, and he is actually seeking out those who are marginalized in society. Those who are in the crevices of society, who are the forgotten, who are the considered unclean. Luke chapter 5 just shows Jesus going from one place to another, one situation, one person to another, who desperately needs hope. That's where we see Jesus. And Jesus is comfortable in this mess. Completely comfortable. Seeing they're just reclining, eating with them. There's a few who aren't comfortable with this. I always think about where are the disciples when this has happened. There's only four of them. We know Matthew's there. He's the one throwing the party. What about Peter, James, John, Andrew? Where are they? It, our passage tells us that, that as they sat there, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples. So whatever was happening, we know that Pharisees would never walk into that room. Right? They, they don't want to be seen with sinners. So somehow the Pharisees... They walked up to the disciples. Apparently, the disciples weren't in the room either. Because they approached them. And so, you know, and I get it. Peter, James, John, Andrew, they're good Jewish, they're young Jewish boys, they're good boys. Their mama raised them well, said, hey, don't, you know, don't hang out with tax collectors, sinners, those who dance, those who chew. Don't, don't do that. They're probably sitting out there having a debate. Like, do we go in? What, what have we done? We've decided to follow this guy. He's in there reclining at the table with sinners. Do, do, we, do we join? Do we sit out here? They're probably in the doorway trying to figure it out. They're probably having the conversation. I don't know. Maybe we should go in. But then mom's going to be upset. Uh, but if we don't go in, Jesus is going to be upset. Uh, who, who, 
Who would you rather be in trouble with, Jesus or mom? Oh, I'd rather be in trouble with Jesus. Right? <laughs> I was waiting for that. So they're sitting out there, and it says that the Pharisees, the religious, come walking up, and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why is your leader Jesus? They're always watching Jesus, by the way. Why is he in there eating with tax collectors and sinners? And they're probably going, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Somehow Jesus saw this. He heard what was asked because he's Jesus. He hears everything, knows everything. So he gets up. I can see him excusing himself from the table. Hey, I'll be right back. I don't want to be rude. Just give me one second. Walks over the doorway, goes to the Pharisees and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is Jesus, the spotless lamb, the one who is fully righteous. And yet, where do we see him? Engaging with the sick who need a doctor. Engaging with the unrighteous who need repentance. And I think there's some irony in what he's saying. I think there's some sarcasm in what Jesus is saying. I think he walks up to the Pharisees and he says, listen, I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to bring healing to the sick. I've come to bring, um, uh, to bring uh, righteousness to those who are repentant. That's why I've come. That's why, I, why I'm in there. And I think he's probably kind of going, hello, Pharisees. Look in the mirror. That's you. Sometimes the Pharisees were so blinded by their self-righteousness that they didn't see their desperate need for a Savior. They didn't see their desperate need for a Savior. And friend, can I just say if you're in here today and maybe you got dragged in here today and you say, you know, I don't need a Savior, I can guarantee you this. If you don't believe you need a Savior, you don't have a Savior in this moment. Because those of us who know that we need a Savior, we cling to the cross of Jesus. Because it's our only hope. It's all we got. And Jesus in this moment is looking at them saying, you are so blinded by your self-righteousness. If you knew the, the heart of the Father, if you knew the heart of God, you, you wouldn't be sitting out here. You would be in there with me. If your, if your hearts had been truly transformed with God's steadfast love towards you, you would be reclining at the table just begging these people to come. Come to the heart of the Father. Come to the love of the Father. But yet you're sitting out there. Like Jesus is just so comfortable in the mess and it's a messy situation. And what we're going to find is when we walk across the street and we get on mission with Jesus in our neighborhoods and we go and we knock on the door or we interact with someone and we, at, at work, a colleague, a peer, on our campus, students, and we begin to engage in the lives of others, what we're going to find, it is a complete mess. But you know what? Thankfully, someone walked into your mess at some point. And by the way, we're still a mess. Thankfully, I still have people in my life today in Christ. I'm still a mess and they still walk with me. And so see, we, and Jesus just, he's in the, he's in the thick of the messiness of being on mission. 
So how do we do this? I'm going to give you one practical application. It's so simple. And you can write this down. You ready? Just do something. Just do something. Like anything. Do do you see what Jesus did? He just went. He just went to the dinner. He just went to the block party. It was like almost as if there was the ministry of presence. Just that Jesus went. When we get engaged in our neighborhoods and in in those living around us, and and there's that one neighbor, they never mow their yard. It's two feet tall, and it drives you crazy. And you have thought about numbers of times, I'm writing the HOA, I'm going to let them know, uh, they're going to get it. And then you finally go over and you knock on the door because you want to be a good churchgoer and fill in that grid from last week, right? So I'm going to do this. And you go over and you knock on the door and you find out it's a single mother with three kids who is barely making it by. It takes everything she has just to care for her kids. The lawn is the last thing on her mind. What do you do? You do something. You take a lawnmower with you next time you go over. You take the kids off her hand for just a little bit and say, go to Target. Have a cup of coffee. Go read a book. Just do something. Anything. You don't have to have the right words. I, I, I don't see anywhere in this passage where we see Jesus, like, preaching. Most of what Jesus says, or a lot of what Jesus says, is in red, and it's all throughout the Gospels. There's not like some long sermon here. Well, I don't know the right words. Apparently, Jesus didn't know the right words because he didn't say anything that we have record of. It wasn't as if he went to this big block party. They're all reclining at the table, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm glad there's a crowd here. I love crowds. I love to preach crowds got a few things I want to say. That's not what I see Jesus doing. I see Jesus reclining at the table, looking at the person across from him or next to him, the tax collector, the sinner, and just saying, what's your story? (laughs) How did you get here? And just listening. And just listening. We just have to do something. Something. And you're going to walk in the mess and you're going to get so far over your head. That's okay. His grace is sufficient. You're going to be okay. Just do something. I want to introduce you to a young man. His name's Kobe. Kobe I met when he was five years old. He is now uh, 11, 12. I coached Kobe in baseball. Kobe was probably the best athlete we had on our little t-ball team at the time. And uh, I mean, athletic, yes, sir, no, sir, on the field, gave it 100%. You bet, coach, whatever you say, I'll do it. I, I thought, man, what a great young man this kid is. Well, come to find out, baseball was the only place he had it together because everywhere else in life, he was an absolute mess. The school wouldn't keep him in regular class. He had to go to special needs class because of behavior issues. I begin to, we get, we start to get to know his story. And 
his mom, Kim, her story. Kobe's only met his dad a few times. Those are the times that he beat him. His dad's in prison. Kim's a single mom, just doing everything she can. She gets paid by the hour. She has a simple job, doing everything she can to get by, raise a young man all by herself. And she was a mess, complete mess. Kobe was a complete mess, complete mess. I started to get phone calls of, you know, uh, from Kim of Kobe's behavior problems at school, in the neighborhood, whatever. And I used to say to my wife, why, why, what, why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we investing in all this? And she, goes, and she said, Denny, this is why you coach. You coach for moments like this. I said, no, I coach to win. <laughs> I just coach to win. That's it. I just want to win. You know? She said, this is why you're coaching. And I said, but this is like getting way in over our heads. This is getting messy. And she said, we, this is my wife. He said, and we're going to walk into it. So we walked into the lives of Kim and Kobe. We got phone calls late at night where Kobe at eight years old was contemplating taking his life. He was cutting himself all up and down his arms. The school would call me. Pastor Denny, can you come up to the school? Kobe's the only one. He says, you're the only one that Kobe wants to talk to. He just pulled all the ceiling tiles out of the, out of the ceiling and pulled off the chalkboards, and we, we have them restrained. I'd go down to school and just beg, he's a good kid. If you could just see him in the baseball field, if you could just. He's a leader, I'm telling you, he's a leader. No. Almost everybody gave up on Kim and Kobe. But Jesus never did. A few years later, when he was 10 years old, I got the privilege, me, my son, and my wife, to baptize both he and his mom. They finally came to Jesus. I mean, prayers, heartache, sweat, tears, messiness upon messiness upon messiness. But now Kobe's like one of my kids. Like he's in our family pictures like type thing. Right? And, and it was messy. And we felt at times where I was so, it was so above me. I don't know how to deal with a child with, with this type of mental problems. I don't. I don't know how to deal with, with, with this issue or that issue. I don't know. But what God just kept telling us is just do something. Just do anything. Show them the hope of Jesus. Because the only thing that really matters is love in action. That's all that really matters is love in action. They will know you are my disciples by your love. And Jesus just kept saying, just do something. The only thing that matters is love in action. So just love, love, love. Get in the mess, get in the mess, and I will take care of the rest. And he did. Oh, he did. You know, last year, Kobe finally got back into regular class. They let him out of special needs, uh, out of the special, uh, uh, special education program and let him into a regular class. And he got a leadership certificate for being the leader of his class at his school. This was the kid I was taking to a mental hospital at seven, eight years old. And you say, no, no, wait, it's not me. It's nothing. You know what it is? It's Jesus. Jesus enters the mess of people's lives. And your life may be a mess today. And he's saying, I'm here, I'm entering it. Let me in. 
And all he's saying is, will my people just do something? Just enter the mess. Just do something. The only thing that really matters is love in action. Is love in action. We have to step in the mess. And there's plenty of opportunity to do that if you just look around. In fact, as a church, we have plenty of opportunity to do that. There's two responses today. One's very practical and one I think is uh, highly important. One is practical. Is that God's going to bring or could bring messy situations to us as a church family, kind of corporately as a church. And it was almost this time last year or almost a year ago where Harvey came through and just... Our communities. And many of us, if not all of us as a church, got involved, got engaged, and found ourselves in more than just construction, but found ourselves in places of doing spiritual reconstruction in the lives of people, entering into the mess. And this is what we know. We know that it's just a matter of time, possibly, when something else happens. So we as a church family want to be ready. We want to be ready. We want to deploy. We want to move our people as quick as possible when something happens. So in, in the seat in front of you, this is what I need you to do. Everyone's doing this. We're going to have security guards in the back to make sure everyone is doing this. Go ahead and grab this. This is called disaster readiness card. There's two purposes for this card. Number one is that I am asking, we are asking that you fill out the family profile. We, we want to make sure that our information that we have in the database matches your current information in which is true about you, your address and all that. So we want to we, we make sure our, our database is clean. So please do this. Some of you aren't moving. You're, you, you, should be, you should be doing this motion and getting this motion with a pen. All right? And just start writing as I'm talking. Fill this out. And then on the back, some additional information. We want to be able to create a profile I'm not saying if you sign this piece of paper that you're going to be doing disaster relief. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is let us know. Let us know. If you have skills in construction, check it. You're electrical, plumbing, legal, counseling. Uh, I can speak a, a, a second language or a third language. Let us know. Just we want to create a profile so that in the moment of disaster within our community, we can be the church that's on mission. And we can go in the database and say, we need somebody who can do light construction. And Joe, you, can, you and your team can run a, run, run a report and there's 500 people who do light construction. Get them in the mess. Go. Right? We're going to get messy. So fill this out. Fill this out. And, and don't don't leave until it's done and then drop it in the boxes back there. Um, so I'm so glad everyone, everyone is doing this right now. Whew, thank you, everybody who's doing everybody who is doing it, which is all of us. So thank you so much for that. This is the practical, practical response. The important response is this. We're going to come to the communion tables here in just a moment. The Pharisees' problem in this moment was they forgot they were a mess. You see, when we, when we move into the gospel, when we get to know the, the breadth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it just reflects back to us our great need for grace and mercy and for a Savior. And before we think we're too clean, let us remember we're still a mess. And what God does is he takes a mess he redeems it, he reconciles it, and he makes it into a masterpiece. He makes it into his people. 
So we're going to take communion and we're going to respond in worship in just a moment. And as Colin and his team lead us through worship, as you take of the bread, as you take of the cup, just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for bringing me, stepping into my mess and bringing redemption and reconciliation to me. Thank you. So we're going to do that in just a second. Jesus, we praise you today. You are our Savior. You are the one who brings grace and mercy. You are the one that has began a good work in us, and you'll be faithful to complete it. And we take of the cup today, and we take of this bread in remembrance of you, and just may it encourage our hearts. Lord, that we don't rest on our self-righteousness. We rest on the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. Amen.